You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Well, good morning and welcome from your older sister, uh, Sojourn Midtown. And we had the privilege from 2009 to 2016 of serving here uh, at, uh, at Sojourn East and uh, enjoyed that time. It's good to be back here all the way back to uh, when we were in Walden School in 2009. I don't know if any of you here recall that, uh, but, uh, but that, was, that was where it started. And uh, we were there a few weeks and then moved out on Westport. And then God blessed us with this location here where we, uh, where we are right now. Well, I want to ask you a question, uh, and the simple question for those of you who read the Bible, and the question is this, what are you looking for when you read the Bible? Like, what are you really looking for? What's your, your goal when you read the Bible? What is it that you're looking for, and what is your goal? Now, a few of you watching online or that are here, you may be brand new to the Christian faith, or you may even be skeptical, not a believer yet, and you may be thinking, why read the Bible at all? Why should I even look at the Bible? But here's what we as Christians believe about the Bible. We believe that it's the story of God's work that has been superintended by God in such a way that it is his very words that it has the power to transform people's lives. That's what we believe about the Bible. And so I'm glad you're asking those questions. I'm glad you're thinking about that. And that's why we're looking at and thinking about what we are looking for when we look at the Bible. But the rest of you, I want you to think about when you read the Bible, what is your goal? Now, I think one of the goals we sometimes have that isn't necessarily bad when we read the Bible is we have the goal of information. Like we're trying to know more. We're trying to understand things and that's not bad. There are times you need to read the Bible to get information. You need to understand that's not a bad thing. But if that's all you do, we have what we might, call seminary student syndrome. I know we don't have any seminary students like that here, but just in theory, let's talk about this, about how you have somebody who feels like whatever is said about the Bible, they need to tell you everything they know about the Bible, about that particular topic. And that's not helpful. That's not helpful because that's what happens. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that knowledge by itself puffs us up. And if we're looking only for information, it does. It puffs us up and it makes us so focused on the information that we miss other things. But sometimes, sometimes we read the Bible for affirmation. Now that again is not always bad. There are times you need to run to God's word and say, God, I am broken, I am hurting. I need something to affirm who I am in Christ. And that is not necessarily wrong. But if you only read the Bible for affirmation, here's what tends to happen. You tend to read the Bible looking for what you want to find. You tend to looking for the, read the Bible looking for, I want to be affirmed in who I am. I want to feel better about myself. I want, that's the Bible's purpose is just to make me feel better. One of the places we see that is in Instagram posts. Now, I'm not saying it's bad for you to put a Bible verse on Instagram. Not saying that. But I am saying this. Sometimes when people are doing that, they have this, this kind of, they're putting up a picture to affirm what they want instead of what the scriptural text actually says. Let's think of the ubiquitous one that we all see often. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Almost always with somebody in some sort of a sport or something like that who has accomplished something amazing. Now, let me tell you something. 
Unless you've climbed a lot of mountains, I don't care who Christ is to you, you're not getting to the top of that mountain like that guy. Okay, you're just not. You're not going to get there just because of this verse. This verse has to do with Paul, who is in a time of persecution and potential death, saying, I can persevere because of who Jesus is, not who I am. Paul is not trying to climb a mountain at the time or feel better about his capacities to do so in a particular sport. I think of another one that I've seen, Psalm 33. In Psalm 33, that often comes out right around 4th of July where it says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And it's put in a way that implies, or you can infer from it that the implication is that this nation whose God is the Lord is, or at least could be America. But it's not. It's about God's old covenant people of Israel and plaster it on things like this. And then just as if the point isn't clear enough with a flag and one nation under God to try to connect it to what we want to, this is using it for affirmation. Now, here was my favorite one I ran across in the last couple of weeks. This next one of Luke 4, 7. This one sounds really good. If thou wilt therefore worship me, all shall be thine. It's great until you look it up in its context. It's the devil talking to Jesus. When he's tempting Jesus. <laughs> and somebody just evidently thought, this is great to put on my, my Instagram feed. I ran across this one. Well, I got inspired by this and I decided to put my life verse on Instagram uh, on here or on the post right here. I didn't really put it up. But by the next one here is from Deuteronomy. This is my life verse. When the Lord your God enlarges your territory, he promised you, you crave meat and say, I would like to eat some meat. You may eat as much as you want. Yes, this is my absolute life verse right here. Not really, but, but it's a pretty cool verse. But in that, when I do that, what I'm doing is simply using this text to affirm what I want rather than looking at what the text really means. And so if all we do is affirmation, we're going to use the Bible for ourselves to try to affirm what we want. If we only use it for information, we can get puffed up where we end up just, just using information, but not really seeing any change. But here's what I want to encourage you that your focus in your Bible reading being not transfer, not information, not affirmation, but transformation. That's what I want you to focus on. Focus on transformation. And when we do that, when we use the Bible, we see the Bible as a tool for transformation, the texts that we once read for affirmation or information, either one, mean more than they did before. Now, and the text we're looking at today, focusing on Jeremiah 29, 11, that happened to me about 25 years ago. About 25 years ago, I had just graduated from seminary. And at that time, I had for all of my life up to that point, really, uh, and I really wrestled with this text, but I think I'd always read Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, plans for your well-being and not for your harm and so on. I'd read that as an affirmation of my dreams, my hopes, my visions. In fact, when I had graduated from high school, I'd gotten a plaque that I'd put up on my wall with this verse on it. And what that verse meant to me is that God was in the business of helping me with my dreams and my, what I desired. I got to the end of seminary, graduated from seminary. And I had had this attitude of this church I'm in. I was in a church, pastoring a little church in a town of about 400 people. And I know some of you love rural areas and small towns. I don't, okay? Praise God for you. There's nothing wrong with, with your, what you like and what you desire. I love the city. 
And my attitude was, once I graduate from seminary, I am leaving this little town and I'm going somewhere else. That was my attitude. Shouldn't have been. That was a wrong attitude, but that was my attitude. I got to the end of seminary, graduated with my MDiv, and at the end of seminary, then I started sending out all my resumes to all these churches that I just knew would really, really want me to come as their pastor or as on staff in their churches. And God slammed every door, <laughs> every single one of them. Boom, 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 boom. Multiple ones right in a row through the strangest of circumstances. Sometimes every door slammed in my face. And I was frustrated and I was upset because after all, here I am stuck in a place that felt like exile to me. I didn't plan to be here very long. And yet here I am in this place. And I was preaching through the book of Jeremiah. And I got to this text that I'd always read as something about affirming my dreams, my vision, my desires. And I found out that this text is not about affirming me or my dreams. This text is about living a life that's planted in God's promises, even when we're not in the place or in the situation where we wanted to be. That's what this text is about. And I want us to explore this text with that in mind today, because see, this, this text, it wasn't written for a plaque or an Instagram post. This text was written as part of a letter that was penned for people who were in exile, separated from the place where they belonged, and they were in exile. That's what it was written for. Now, here's what I want us to think about as we get into this. You gotta understand the biblical concept of exile, this whole notion of what is meant by exile biblically. And the way we've gotta understand that is by going back to the book of Genesis. If you go to Genesis chapter three and verse 23, you've got this event where Adam and Eve sinned and they are sent out of the garden. That's the first exile in scripture. Adam and Eve are exiled from the place where they were belonging, the place where they were put by God and created. They're exiled from that. They're sent out from there. They're separated from the place where they belong. And that becomes kind of this template. And God tells the Israelites over and over and over, if you turn to other gods and you turn away from me, you will be sent away into exile. will be sent out from the place that you are and the place where you belong. And God told them that over and over. But time and time again, the Israelites turned away from God. They turned to idols. And so what does God do? God sends them into exile. And the exiles begin in the eighth century when the Assyrians go and they, they take the northern 10 tribes and they send them, scatter them over the known world at that time. But then it continues. The Babylonians with the southern kingdom in the year 605 and then again in 597, the Babylonians take the best and the brightest and the wisest and the wealthiest. They take all those people out of Israel and they take them to the city of Babylon. Now, some of them were unrighteous that they took, but some of them were righteous. Remember, Ezekiel and Daniel were among those that were exiled at this time. The prophets of God, Ezekiel and Daniel, were taken from their homeland. And so suddenly God's people become a diaspora. They become enslaved. They become exiled. And these are the people to whom this letter was written. If we think of exile in biblical terms, it's anytime you're separated from the place where you belong, where you no longer have a place where you fit because you're separated from the place where you belong. Sometimes that happens because of sin. 
Sometimes it happens because of circumstances, but it's when we're separated, torn away from the place where we belong. I just want to ask, has anyone felt at least a little bit of exile in the past year? Just like things don't fit or you don't fit or you don't have a place. I know many people have faced job loss. Suddenly they, they had a job, they had a place where they fit and suddenly they don't. Or the expectations of the job you're in suddenly changed because of COVID. And because of all the things we've faced in the coronavirus, a lot of people feel a sense of exile because they're separated. They're not with people they want to be with. The family that they would have been with on a repeated basis, suddenly you're separated from the family you love, even in our seating at church. Some of you feel like I'm just kind of an island here. And there's a lot of people over there clustered and a lot of people over there, but I'm just kind of here. And you feel exile. Some of you, you're in a place you don't want to be. As much as I may love Louisville, you may not. And you may be saying, why am I even in this place? How did I get here? And who's going to get me out of here? That may be the way you feel right now. Where you think, I just don't have a place anymore where I fit or where I belong. The whole world just feels like a pair of shoes that don't fit. And I just don't feel like I have a place. If that's how you felt at some point in the past year, this book is for you. This text is for you because you're feeling this sense of exile. And know that your sense of exile, that aching you feel, is an echo of in the very beginning when humanity was sent out from the place where they belong and suddenly they were broken and separated. And you're feeling it. You feel the ache of Eden still. You're separated from the place where you felt like you belonged. And here's what I want you to hear. There is a lie that haunts us in our times of exile. There is a lie that Satan tells us in our times of exile, and we often believe it. And here's the lie that Satan tells us in our times of exile is this. God has nothing good for me in the place where I'm at. In the situation I'm in, God has nothing good for me. I'm in a spot where God's blessings can't reach. The only way that I can get to where life gets good is when I get to the other side of the situation. The only way I can get to a place where life gets good is if I get out of where I'm at. That's the lie that the false prophets were telling them, and it's the lie that Satan still tells us, that I have to get out of where I am before life can get good again, before God can bless me. You see that in verses eight and nine. This is what the Lord, the God of armies says. Don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them. They are prophesying falsely to you in my name. You see what's going on here, if we go back a chapter, is the false prophets are telling the Israelites, don't even unpack your bags. Don't unpack your bags. Don't do anything. When you get to Babylon, don't settle in there. Don't do anything with the community around you. Just put everything on hold because God's getting you out of there in two years or less. 
That's what the false prophets are telling them. God's getting you out of there in two years or less. There's no blessings from God available where you're at. There's nothing that God can do where you're at. All that can be done is to get back in the place where you were, get out of the place where you're at. That's what the false prophets were telling these people. Now, we aren't waiting typically for a return to Jerusalem. That's nothing in your life. You're not saying, man, if only I get back to Jerusalem. But we can get entangled in this same lie. We can get entangled in this exact same lie that there's no blessing in my place of exile. You see, you know what's happening when you say or you hear yourself saying, if only I had a different job, then things would be okay and I'd be happy. If only I lived in a different place, things would be okay and I'd be happy. If only COVID hadn't happened, I would be okay and things would be happy. If only the vaccine brings us to the point where we can go back to life as normal, then I can be happy. If only my child would stop doing this or start doing this, then I could be happy. If only this roommate would change, if only the circumstance would change, if only I had a child, if only I had a spouse, or if only I didn't have the spouse that I've got, or if only this didn't happen, if this person were in my life or out of my life. I don't care what it is. It's that lie that says, if only I can get that to go right, then I can be okay. If only I can get that to go right, then I can be happy. If only I can get that, then God will bless me again. And that leads us, as it did them, to false gods. You see, anytime you say, if only that, then I can be all right. Behold, that is your God. You've made that your God. If you're saying, if only I get that, everything can be okay. If only I get that, then God can bless me. That has become your God, whatever it may be. I remember back in the decade of election, about 15 years ago, my wife and I dealing with infertility and wanting a child. And we had this attitude, even though we didn't mean to, of if only we get a child, everything is going to be okay. Everything's going to be all right then. Everything will be just fine. We'll be able to do what all the things that we'll, we'll be able to go back to normal. And because of that, a lot of tension and a lot of issues, we pushed that forward and said, you know what? That's going to go away as soon as we get a child as soon as that. You know what? We got a child. And we also realized we have a bundle of issues that we have never dealt with because we kept pushing it out thinking, if only I have that, it's going to be okay. That's going to happen to you. If you're saying, if only I get that, everything's going to be okay. What you're going to end up with is you'll get to a point you get that and you realize all those things are still there. Why? because you've made a God out of something that can't supply what only God can supply. You've made a God out of it. You've turned it into an idol. And hear this, good things become bad things when we turn them into God things. Get that in your mind. Good things turn into bad things when we turn them into God things. Anything you make a God, even if it's a good thing, It will turn against you if you make it the God thing of your life. 
Not because it was in and of itself bad. Our desire for a child wasn't bad. It was that we turned it into a Messiah, into a God thing that we thought would save us from ourselves. And that's what we do. That's what the Israelites were doing. The Israelites were saying, look, if we get back to the land, everything can be okay. Everything will be great if we just get back to the land. And Jeremiah is saying to them, that's not going to solve things. The first place, you're not getting back to that land for a long time. And secondly, the land isn't going to solve. They had turned the land God gave them into the God they actually served. And Jeremiah is warning them against that. And this attitude of, if only I get this, it makes us miserable. Like even apart from idolatry, it just makes us miserable. Even popular entertainment gets that. Has anybody watched the movie uh, Soul over the past few weeks? Okay, several of you watched that. Don't get your theology of what happens to you after you die from the movie, okay? All right, get your music, get entertainment. Don't get that from the movie. But what I found interesting and fascinating in that movie is it gets something about this. Because Joe Gardner, the protagonist of the movie, he has this attitude that if only I can get this particular gig with this particular band and play with them, then all of my life is suddenly going to gain meaning again. It's going to have meaning. It's going to have purpose. Everything's going to be fine. And then he gets it. And they say, we do it all again tomorrow night. And he realized that it didn't provide him what he thought it would. But what does provide meaning and value and purpose is there's a point in which he sees the beauty of the ordinary life and the ordinary world. All the ordinary things people do, he sees the beauty in those things. And because he sees the beauty, he sees that life has meaning and purpose apart from his achievements. Now, we as believers in Jesus Christ We have so much more than that. It's not just that we can see the beauty in the ordinary, though it's certainly there. We have the presence and the promises of God, even in the ordinary stuff of life and even in our exiles. But if we live in this, if only I get this, we never see that. And that's what Jeremiah is trying to get at. And in verses five and six, he makes an earth-shaking declaration here. Hear this. Verses five and six, he says, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, find wives for yourself, have sons, daughters, find wives for your sons, give your daughters to men in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease. Now, I don't want us to brush over this. This is really important because there are words in this text that would have made the ancient Israelites think about earlier texts in the Bible. For example, Genesis 1.28 For God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That word language of subduing has to do with breaking up the ground and planting in it is what it has to do with. So we have this this kind of idea of multiply and plant gardens. You also see it in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 26, 9. When they go into the brand new land, when the Israelites enter the land, God says, I will turn to you and I will will be faithful to you, make you fruitful and multiply and confirm my covenant with you. Now, here's what I want you to see in this. When Jeremiah starts talking about planting gardens and multiplying, people are going to think about that and they're going to recognize that here's what Jeremiah is saying. The things that God had promised to Adam and Eve in this blessed garden in the beginning, the blessings that God had spoken to the people as they moved into the new land of Israel, those same blessings are accessible to you even in Babylon. 
My blessings are accessible to you even in Babylon. You see, he's saying to them, live as if God's blessings are no less available in your exile than they were in the place you were before. God's blessings and presence are available even in exile. They may look different, but they are available even in our exiles. And that's because God's blessings don't depend on where you are. His blessings depend on who he is. Never forget that. Your blessings from God don't depend on where you are. They depend on who he is. It's not about your location. It's about his character. And then Jeremiah moves beyond this and becomes even more radical in verse 7. In verse 7, he says, pursue the well-being, pursue the shalom of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. He's saying, seek the peace of Babylon. Seek the shalom of Babylon. This idea of peace or shalom, it has to do with, with, with basically flourishing in God's good design. That's what it has to do with. And he's saying, not only seek peace in this city, but seek peace for Babylon. And you will find peace when you seek peace for the place where you are, even if it is your place of exile. You feel an exile in some area of your life right now? Seek the peace and the flourishing of the place where you are. And in this, when we realize this, God's blessings are available in our exile. And we can seek peace not only in our exile, but for our place of exile. It totally changes the way we respond to exile. Because you see, we can be asking ourselves, even now, in the exiles we feel right now, what is God teaching me through the limits I'm feeling right now? Who is there? who's with me in this exile that I can seek to bless even in exile. What is God teaching me? Because God has a plan for your exile, but his, ha- his plan happens in his time and in his way. In his time, in his way. We see that in this text as well. You see where it says, God says to them, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and confirm my promise concerning you to restore you. He says, I'm going to do it. But it's going to be 70 years that you're going to spend in this. And it's there that he says, for I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Now, I got to think that the people then, they said 70 years in Babylon, actually, that kind of sounds like a disaster. Like, we're being left here for 70 years. That sounds like a disaster to us. But it isn't. It's God's plan for his people to understand that he is present even in Babylon. It's part of God's plan. He does it in his time. He does it in his way so we can look for God's blessing and peace, even in our exile. So 25 years ago, I did feel stranded. I felt like I was in exile, stuck in a town of 400 people in a church of about 40 or 50 people 
and I couldn't seem to get out. I was preaching through Jeremiah. I get to this text. And what God says to me through this text is to spend time and to love the place where you're at. To engage with the place where you're at, to love the place where I have put you. And a few weeks after I preached this text, I did something we hadn't done yet. We'd been there about three or four years at that point. And what I did was we went and we bought seeds for a garden and we bought rose bushes. And we planted all those behind and in front of a parsonage that we would never own and never wanted to own. (laughs) But we planted them there as a way of saying we are going to be grounded and rooted here in this place. We're here. And I can't say I did everything perfect in that church in the years that followed, but I can say that I authentically loved the people who were in that place. And God didn't take us out of there quickly. We spent between three and four years more there. It's been almost seven years in that church total over that time period. And God didn't take me to a new place, but he made me a new person in the place where I was. And that's what he does for you when you look for his promises in the place where you are. He doesn't necessarily take you to a new place. He makes you a new person in the place where you are. Three truths I want you to get for your life this week out of this text. Here's the first one. The world as it is matters. The world as it is matters. This world around us that we see, it really does matter. The world as it is, it matters. Jeremiah says to them in verse seven, pursue the peace, the shalom, the well-being, the flourishing in God's good design of the city to which I have deported you. Pursue it, the peace of that place. You realize Babylon was a broken place. It's full of idolatry. It was full of wickedness. Babylon was a broken place, but God said, seek the peace of the place where you are. I don't know if you've noticed it, but our world is broken. It's pretty messed up in a lot of different ways. In the past year, we've seen racial injustice and political division and, and virus that destroyed plans that seems to make all other pains go deeper. The world is a broken place. But let us not forget that God said in the beginning, it is good when he created his world. And though sin has entered it and infected it and defected it in so many ways, there are fragments of beauty and goodness that still remain. The world as it is really does matter. There's a musician named Rich Mullins And he said one time in one of his songs, there's too much beauty around us for just two eyes to see, but everywhere I go, I'm looking, I'm looking. This world is beautiful and it really matters. Seek justice, seek peace, seek the good of the world in which you live right now. Seek it. But the second point I wanna make is kind of may seem paradoxical compared to that one. And here's the, the world as it is, is not the world that matters most. (laughs) The world as it is matters, but the world as it is, is not the world that matters most. 
That's what Jeremiah is saying to them in verse 14, where he says that I will turn the turning, literally. I will restore your fortunes. I will gather you and I will bring you back to the land from which I banished you. What is he saying? There's something better that I've got for you in the future. And God says that to us too. He has something better for us in the future than what we have now. The world as it is, is not the world that matters most. And because of that, the people that love this world best are the people who love the next world most. If we want to live, love this world best, then we need to love the next world most. And I say that because to hear some Christians talk at different times, you would think that if things don't go well in the United States, this is on the right and on the left both, but if things don't go well, and if people we think aren't in the right places and the wrong places, that, that, that somehow God's plan is completely blown. And so people tie their lives to all sorts of political ideals and political parties and, and angry at others who don't share their views. And it's as if people think that God is up there in the heavens wringing his hands saying, oh, myself, what am I going to do? It's like, no, God has a plan and he has a better world coming. Don't tie your life to the things in this world to the point that that becomes your passion That becomes what upsets you. That becomes the only way you can find joy is when things go the way you think they should. The United States is not the kingdom of God. We are exiles here. There is a kingdom that is coming that is already here yet is not quite yet fulfilled, not fully fulfilled, and it's not tied to any nation. Don't tie yourself to a nation or a party or the right or the left. Tie yourself to the cross, to the kingdom of God, because the kingdom that's coming that's good won't come riding on a donkey or an elephant or in red, white, and blue. It's already come. It's already been inaugurated. And it comes through a crucified Savior in his blood, the one who is both lion and lamb. Don't tie yourself to the kingdoms of this world in these ways. And I think for many of us, for many of us, the reason we don't long for the world that's yet to come is because the world as it is has been pretty comfortable for us. I really think so. The world as it is is pretty comfortable. And so we don't yearn for a kingdom that is yet to come. And even with all the tragedy that we see of the coronavirus, here's what I would love to see, that it makes us ache for a world that's yet to come for a world where there is no disease, where there are a world where there are no pandemics, there are no limits and distance between us. And so as you look at your life over the past year, ache and lament and be sorrowful. It's okay over all the things you've missed. It's okay to ache and to lament and to hurt over the graduations that weren't, over the the vacations even that weren't, through the times you wanted to spend with others that you didn't get to spend. It's okay to ache and lament, especially about lives lost as we look at our world. But instead of letting that lament and that sadness point you toward, I can't wait till we're done with this. I can't wait till we're on the other side of this. Let that ache and lament point you toward, I can't wait for the kingdom come. 
I can't wait for Jesus to come back. I can't wait for a new kingdom where none of these things reign. I can't wait for Jesus. The world as it is matters, but it's not the world that matters most. And last of all, and most important of all, remember this. If you are in Christ, your exiles are never forever. See, every word of the Old Testament in the Bible leans with eager expectancy toward the New Testament and toward Jesus. It's all about Jesus, even Jeremiah 29. And you see, their exile pointed forward to something that was yet to come. And one of the things that was yet to come is where God himself in Christ, he experienced exile. That's what happened on the cross. That's what happened on the cross. Is that God the Son, God in human flesh, was exiled and separated. And God the Father was present in that place too, in pain and in the wrath that you and I deserve. And Jesus was wounded and bruised and died in ultimate exile. The exile of Israel points forward to his exile in our place. But God the Father had plans for him just as he has for Israel, had for Israel and has for us. And the plan that God had for him was resurrection. The way God would bring him was resurrection. The way God would fulfill his plan was through the resurrection of Jesus. That was the future and the hope for Jesus. And I find it beautiful and fascinating that it says in Jeremiah 29, plant gardens and eat their produce. Plant gardens, enjoy their produce. Where was Jesus raised from the dead? But in a garden. And somebody wondered, are you the gardener? (laughs) Well, yeah, kind of. (laughs) The one who brings new life. It's beautiful that it says multiply, do not decrease. And what do we have as a result of Jesus that his church, his people are multiplying still. Children not born through flesh, but who are born through adoption by means of the gospel who become part of this family. The future and the hope that was given to Israel in Jeremiah 29 is given to us through Jesus and through his church. And God's power And God's promises are present in your place of exile because God in Christ has already been in exile. He's already gone into exile in your place. And it says in Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And because he endured exile, the exiles of those who trust in him are always temporary. You feel exiled today? I don't know when it will end, but it will. It doesn't go forever because God has taken the ultimate exile in your place and it will not go on forever. So know that, understand that, get that into your heart that if I am in Christ, my failures are never final and my exiles are never forever. If I am in Christ, my failures are never final and my exiles are never forever. If I am in Christ, my failures are never final and my exiles are never 
forever because he's been exiled in our place. A few years ago, one of our daughters, she came in in the summer in the house and she had shorts on and she had bruises all up and down her leg. Well, child, what have you been doing? What have you been up to? And so she'd been playing outside a lot over the past week or so at that point. And so she said, well, this one I was running by this and I ran into this and this one I was crawling under the porch and I did this. And and she started telling me the stories of all the bruises up and down. And she said at the end of that, she said, sometimes your bruises, they tell you where you've been. And I don't know about you, but I don't think very many people I know have made it through the past year without some bruises. We've had some bruises over the past year or so. But here's what I want you to hear and to know. I want you to hear and know deeply, deeply, that though your bruises may tell you where you've been, your bruises don't tell you where you're going. Though your bruises have tell, told you where you've been, his bruises, his wounds tell you where you're going. Your bruises, your wounds are never the final word because he has been bruised and wounded in your place. His bruises, his wounds, they tell you where you're going. Your bruises and your wounds don't tell the story of who you are and where you're going, but his do. And where his bruises ended up is new life and resurrection. And because of him, so can yours. So can yours. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And after the meal, he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. And as we look at this bread and cup, we're reminded of the bruises and the wounds of Jesus. So for all of you who are in Christ and part of his church, I invite you at this time, partake in this meal. Partake in this meal together as a reminder that his bruises, his wounds were in your place and they tell you where you're going, just where he is in glory and in wonder and in beauty and an exile that has ended and so will yours because of him. Let's pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.